0: Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you.
1: Awesome.
0: Hey, thanks for coming on. I hope you can hear me. This is, so everyone knows this is the first call and show I've done from my little writing college, uh, cottage in the desert highlands outside of Reno. And so this is actually being beamed through a directional little microwave antenna, going to a tower, going to God knows where. So I hope it, uh, I hope it manages to hold up. <laughs> cool. Wonderful. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on, Ryan. Um, I, I don't I think you're someone who probably doesn't need an introduction because your books have done so well and I and I suspect your and my audiences interact but but for the sake of form I think I'm gonna do a very abbreviated and feel free to to modify or edit um, in, introduction um, I mean you're you're a best-selling author okay. all, all of your books do ph- phenomenally well and um, your material has been all over the place I I, I guess you you originally came out of the the world of Robert Greene who's Book 48, Laws of Power, I think people are probably pretty familiar with. But um, you've done stuff, you know, way beyond that. Most recently, um, you have uh, a book that came out, I think, very recently, right, um, around Courage, which is the first in a series of of books about cardinal virtues. Uh, Before this, one of the books of yours that I like the most, um, and of course I would, is a book called Conspiracy that was really the sort of inside take on the whole Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker lawsuit. Which I, I you know I think is probably not quite as top as uh, mine these days, um, uh, at least just because gawker doesn 't exist well i I guess it did come back, but at one point Gawker was like a major force in American media, and you covered probably like the biggest story in American media, which was tech and media actually you know going to the mattresses, so to speak, and fighting about it, which I, and I thought it was a, a phenomenal book um, and then you 've also written a lot about stoicism, a, a philosophy that I think you yourself um, embrace and that you've um, sort of explained for, for your audience in, in many volumes. And I, I would take your most recent book as kind of part of that series, but I'll, I'll shut up there and, and let you fill in the gaps or fix any mistakes that I made in, in the introduction.
1: No, that, that was that was very kind. And and yeah, I, uh, I'm in the middle of this series now on the Cardinal Virtues, which happened to be, I think one of the great uh, convergences of philosophy and religion. The cardinal virtues of Stoicism are the same as the cardinal virtues of Christianity or at least Catholicism. And uh, so I'm in the midst of, of exploring those ideas and, and how one actually applies courage, uh, temperance, justice and wisdom to their actual life uh and um yeah that that's that's the ride i i signed up for and now have to deliver i'm doing a book a year for four years so um even though the book came out last you know just about three weeks ago i am uh i am in the middle of trying to get to the finish line of the first draft of of the second book like in the next couple
0: weeks Oh wow! Okay, then I'll I'll talk even faster so you can go back. To, <laughs> <laughs> you can go back to writing, right? Um. So I I I finished the book yesterday. So I do want to get into the book, but I, I do have one high-level okay. question that I, that I do want to ask to a certain degree that I've always had about Stoicism, not not specifically you're writing about it, but just more broadly. Um. You know, Stoicism is often framed as this. Um. Uh, well, again, courageous sort of philosophy in the sense that, um, it requires you to sort of um. Emotionally, in some sense, shield yourself from the vicissitudes of life and approach things, again, with a, with a certain, keep on saying it, courage about things. And you know, there's even a line, I think, in uh, Will Durant's uh, History of the World or History of Civilizations or whatever, um, that's quoted a lot that says that civilizations start as, as Stoics and end as Epicureans. Um, but you know, if you actually look at the history of Stoicism, that's actually not kind of quite true, <laughs> right? A, a lot of the, the leading Stoics, whether they be right. Marcus Aurelius or Seneca, were actually sort of like post-republic, mid-imperial period philosophers. And to a very reductionist take, it might've been kind of a cope with what was an empire an imperial order that was starting to show sort of its flaws. Its um, I'm curious how you parse that and whether you think Stoicism is what, what the kids these days would call a cope or you think it's something else or what's, what's your general high level view on it? No, I'd love to, I would love to
1: nerd out about this. So I, I did a book actually last year called Lives of the Stoics where I actually looked at like sort of who the Stoics were because there's the philosophy and then there's the sort of the practitioners. And I was fascinated into sort of like how it actually applied. So Stoicism is, uh, it, its its origins go back to Greece uh, right around the, the time of the death of Alexander the Great, um, sort of uh, the golden age of Athens Um but 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 as a as a philosophy, it really doesn't take hold in any serious way until it makes its way from Greece to Rome. So it kind of goes from this provincial, uh, idyllic philosophy into the mainstream in the most powerful empire in the world. It, it's certainly popular in Republic Rome. Um, you know, Cato. Uh, Cato the Younger, being the sort of uh, culmination of that, you know, uh, uh, the, the the most in, one of the most admired Stoic philosophers, primarily for how he lived, not for what he wrote. Um, but then immediately thereafter, the next two prominent Stoics are a guy named Arius and a guy named Athenodorus, who are the tutors and advisors to Octavian. Uh, the next Emperor of Rome, so stoicism seamlessly makes this transition not just from Greece to Rome, but then from Republic Rome to Imperial Rome and is more or less at the center of power or uh, the you know the oppositional party um, all the way through to marcus aurelius um, and and i i, w- I don 't know if I would say that it 's a coping mechanism so much as when when Will Durant says that a uh, uh, society begins as stoic and ends as, as Epicurean, weirdly um, he's meaning sort of lowercase stoicism and lowercase uh, Epicureanism, sort of hedonistic versus you know uh, self controlled. But the irony of stoicism is that it's real tension with Epicureanism. Is put forth by Seneca. Seneca says, "Look, an Epicurean gets involved in politics only if they have to, and then he says a Stoic is not involved in politics or in public life uh, only if something prevents them." And so, what what I think it is is that the Stoic is tries to be at the center of things. To me, the Stoic is the man or the woman in the arena. But as the arena gets bloodier and more complicated, and uh, dysfunctional, it, it, it calls upon the stoic virtues of sort of uh, endurance and uh, perseverance more more than anything.
0: Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. No. I mean, it's interesting how stoicism, and and again, I mean, I, I think you cite the sort of uh, ecumenical nature of a lot of what you discuss, and how a lot of these learnings are to be found not not just in Ancient Greek or Roman philosophy, but even in the Abrahamic religions or or in Buddhism, some notion of detachment. I mean, even in like cognitive right. behavioral therapy, that I know a little bit about, um, you know, they they sort of train you to sort of disengage the emotive response from the actual physical reality of the world, or at least channel it in a different way. Um, and so everyone seems to be somewhat exes- obsessed with that that level of of disconnect. But but getting back to what you said, I, I do think it's interesting to note that that you distinguish between sort of uppercase and lowercase. Stoicism. I think when most people speak of stoicism these days, they they mean the Will Durant sense of like lowercase stoicism. Um, yeah. To be honest, I don't know that I fully understand uppercase. So <laughs> to even comment about it, although I've, I've read. Well, them. Yeah. Well, if you
1: if, if you ask someone what the word stoic means, it's you know sort of has no emotion, uh, sort of simply endures, is resigned to the state of things, you know, uh, is is apathetic, etc., and all of these. Uh, ideas have some connection to the teachings of, of of the Stoics, but when you look at who the actual Stoics were, you know they were artists and emperors and and creators and entrepreneurs and 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 like real people in the real world who were not any of those things like a, a person who was fundamentally disengaged and disinterested um, would would not have done any of the things that Seneca did or Marcus Aurelius did or Epictetus did, right? So I think in the same way that Epicureanism today means like, you know, enjoys good food and is addicted to pleasure. I mean, when you actually read Epicurus, you're like, this is a a very easily satisfied guy who spent a lot of time with his friends pursuing individual self-improvement um, which he found to be pleasurable as opposed to this dude having like orgies and uh, getting drunk all the time. I mean, the main tenet of, of Epicureanism is like enjoy pleasure until pleasure becomes a pain. And obviously that's not what lowercase Epicureanism is.
2: about. Right.
0: Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, again, getting back to the sort of parallels between CBT or and like, uh, um, you know, or, or Buddhism. You know, the older I get, the more I realize managing your own psychology is one of the key challenges of life. And I think one of the sure. key challenges, and I find where again, I find Stoicism. I don't know if I call it contradictory, but at least a little to me confusing is the the sort of the uh, the, the difference the, the. Sorry, go ahead. Or, or sorry, no, sorry. I, I, I think I heard myself. thought it was better. You. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. So yeah, I mean, one of the things I find it uh, kind of confusing is, you know, as you make your way through life, right, if you have a certain stalk or remove to things, on the other hand, it's difficult to actually get enthused and excited about things. And to, to the extent at which you actually stake or bet your emotions on a thing, whether it be a startup or a book or whatever, you know, just examples that I have to have in my personal life, is also to the extent to which you leave yourself vulnerable to the downside or, or the emotional dysregulation that that necessarily implies. And so it just seems odd to me, it, it would almost be like a ratchet mechanism that would allow you to sort of feel the upside, enthusiasm and rush of excitement of a new project, but at the same time, not feel the sort of crushing disappointment when things go all right. Um, that's the part of those. is not have, I have hard trouble have trouble parsing.
1: Well, Epictetus uh, says that the first task of the philosopher is to separate you know, sort of the matters that are in our control from the matters that are outside of our control. So that's how I kind of think about it as a creative. Um, And I'm not perfect at it. And certainly earlier on in my career, I was less good at it. But I, I try to focus my excitement, let's say on a project, on the parts of it that I control versus the parts of it that I don't control. So I, 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 I have a certain detachment now towards what the audience thinks, which weirdly does create like, so Courage just came out. It sold the most uh, of any of my books in the first week. Um, it was, you know, uh, greater than expected success as far as um, the the publisher was concerned and even some of my own expectations were concerned. So there was kind of an anticlimacticness to it in that like maybe earlier in my career, I would have been like, really riding that high. I would have been like excited and, and ambitious towards hitting a specific thing. Um, but there's also a certain protection from like, let's say it had performed less than expected. I was already back to work. So kind of the, the way I try to think about it is like, I want to get excited about the parts of it that are up to me. So the writing of it, the crafting of it, the relationship building of it, you know, the the artistic decisions that went into it, the effort that I put in all of that, And then you are, yeah, a little indifferent as to like what other people say about it. Not completely indifferent because it is a job. And if nobody likes it, you can't really keep doing it. But I've I've tried to get to a place where my excitement is not dependent on other people or other things.
0: Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Again, I would just worry, again, to be the sort of devil's advocate to stoicism, that in some sense, that would leave you out in left field, you know, liking or doing certain things that have no audience or market for it. But that's my yeah. I was marketer side. Yeah, out. of course. No, um, it's,
1: a, it's a tension. And and I think you have to have some some sort of rationality. This is where all the, the different uh, virtues combine. You have to go, okay, look, there. I could, I could do any creative project, right? Um, am I going to do the creative project that I'm excited about? That seems to overlap with things that you know are going to reach people and make a difference in the world, or am I going to only pursue what's sort of self indulgently interesting to me and and I, you know there's kind of a place for that too i 'm not saying it 's totally wrong, but i I try to think about, for instance as i as I work on this book, um, you know how do you make the ideas palatable to other people, et cetera but i 'm still day to day motivated by like is this challenging to me? Is it interesting to me? Am I growing as a writer? Am I making forward progress, uh, et cetera? As opposed to how I think most people are, and you know a lot of these people as well, they're sort of living and breathing based on like, how many retweets something gets or, you know, um, how popular they are at a given moment or or if they are beloved or not beloved, right? Like I try not to think, that much about that. And I try to focus on like, am I doing work that I'm proud of?
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, that's a difficult balance to strike, because you mentioned like the Twitter likes, and of course, in the micro, right, it's not necessarily terribly relevant one tweet, one way or the other. But you know, over time, a collection of, uh, you know, Twitter engagement leads to a subscription curve, which leads to whatever, the viability of a writing career, so at some point you do have to care. Anyhow, for me, at least it's a challenge to on the one hand, motivate myself enough to actually like do it, Of course, but then also not. No, know. it's a
1: job, it's a it's a job. And I, I think this is, you know, sometimes, I think this is really interesting for me as I looked at the actual Stoics. I mean, Seneca is not just this philosopher writing these essays that we, you know, hear about 2000 years later. He was also Rome's, in his lifetime, Rome's greatest playwright and his plays, um, were popular enough that I think this is a pretty epic endorsement. One of the lines from one of his plays is uh, a piece of graffiti at Pompeii, right? Like, so he was popular in his own lifetime as a writer. So I think the tension that we're talking, I, I don't think stoicism sort of comes down and says, all of this is worthless, don't think about any of that. I think stoicism is is navigating the exact tension that you are talking about for uh, a creative, um, as well as for a business person, as well as for an emperor. um, You know, uh, it's navigating that exact tension.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I... Yeah, if I ever figure it out, I think I'll probably just kill over dead. I mean, <laughs> usually one of the ironies of life is that the lessons are usually imparted uh, a little bit after uh, <laughs> you could have done something with them. Um, at least in my at least in my case. Yeah. So let's let's get specifically to your book, which I I I mentioned I, I finished yesterday, and you know this one I I think unlike some of your previous books d- doesn't just focus on Stoicism per se. I mean, it, it's almost. Um, and I, I don't mean this in obviously in a, a reductive way, but it's almost a series of like pep talks, almost on on courage and how to live your life with courage, framed as you often do through you know some illustrative historical anecdote from ancient history or whatever, right? Is, is that or how how do you see how do you see your book?
1: Yeah, I mean I, I'm a big believer in showing versus telling as far as a, a, a writing philosophy, and so um, instead of and I've I've I read a bunch of interesting books about courage and I was probably one of a thousand people that read any of those books, right? To go to to the exact tension we were just talking about. I don't think that many people wake up and go, you know what I need? I need a really good definition of courage. I need need a really good academic exploration of what courage is or isn't. Um, I think we want examples. We want um, stories that we can remember that we can try to apply to or uh, apply to our own lives or give us clarity about our own lives. So I I I I usually think in terms of stories and I try to sort of give through the stories give different um either strategies or insights on the theme. So uh I I'm I what I'm trying to do in this virtue series is sort of define the virtue uh you know up front but then sort of show the different ways that that manifests itself in one's life in sort of big situations and small situations. and I try to do something I learned from Robert Greene, which is show not just the observance of the idea, but also the transgression of the idea. Because I think we can learn as much from the sort of cautionary tales as, as we can from the
0: inspiring tales. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that's kind of incredible. Like, again, the the book is sort of is sort of formatted um, or sort of structured slightly non conventionally, Right. And that you have probably what amount to, I don't know, 40, 50 chapters, but each of them mm-hmm. sort of on the shorter side. And it's sort of, I wouldn't quite call it a parable exactly, but usually seeded by either a quote or by some historical anecdote that's illustrating the sort of chapter's bigger point. Um, and um and again to me I think this is sort of a theme through your writing that you have this vast gallery of historical anecdotes to draw on. I'm imagining Ryan that in the in the form that you live in in Texas you have an immense paper library and you sit pointing through volumes and like do, do you just sense this is the juicy anecdote that's going to make it into a book or how 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 do you source all this how, how does this work what's what's your productivity function to use Tyler Cohen language
1: <laughs> So uh Slight tweak on the, the image that you have of me. Um, about a, two years ago, uh, my wife uh, convinced me or begged me or asked me to move all of our book, all of my books out of our house um, because it was, it was taking up Uh-oh. all the room. So what I did was I, I bought this building in, in this small town near where my farm is um, and all my books are here. And then downstairs I have a small bookstore uh, on one side, and on the other side, there's a record store. But I do; I, I only read physical books, and I, uh, I I read them. I mark them up. I'm always gathering material, which I I tend to organize via note cards, which is sort of a structure or a style I learned when I was a research assistant for Robert Greene. So I'm am sort of always gathering um, up material. Actually, on this book, I hadn't opened the bookstore yet, so the the building has this bar uh it was a, it was a bar many many years ago it has this bar from the eighteen hundreds and i sort of laid out you know hundreds and hundreds of note cards and slowly sort of organized them into themes illustrating the various stories of the book and uh and and built and built the book around that um and you know these are these are examples uh that i i i've collected over you know fifteen or so years now it was it was interesting i as i one of the final chapters in the books is about the the, the Spartans at Thermopylae. And I, I was like, you know, what is the original source material on this again? And then I remembered it was Herodotus. And I went and got my copy of Herodotus. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, here are notes that I made in the margins of this book that I read in 2005 or something, that it's only now uh, coming back and being used, you know, in in a book that I'm writing. So that's sort of my... My system is is read widely, try to catalog the information, organize it, and then it gets uh, it gets spun out into the book.
0: Interesting. And I was going to ask you about the bookstore because I knew about the bookstore thing. I was wondering what the story is. And it sounds, it's almost like I, I have some gun nut friends who like own so many guns and buy and sell so many. They become like firearm, like licensed firearm dealers just for the sake of like dealing with the overhead of their enormous gun nut collections. And it seems like that's kind of what happened. But in, in your case with, with books. That, a, sli- um... a
1: slightly less violent uh, hobby.
0: <laughs> right, right. Um... Although probably far more wars have been started by scribblers than <laughs> than,
1: than people with gun collections. Uh, it, it, it was definitely a cheaper hobby. Also, I, I think um, it, it was just like, uh, it was just slowly taking over our lives. And I, I used to have an office in Austin where I kept right. most of my stuff, but it was just sort of somewhere here and somewhere there and it was kind of all spread out. And, and, you know, as we were looking for a place, we we found this sort of really cool old building and, and, it had the office space upstairs and then it was sort of like, well, what, what would you put downstairs? Right. And um, it, it ended up working out very nicely. And it, it's been cool to sort of be a part of this like little community and sort of float a, a brick and mortar business that probably wouldn't work under ordinary circumstances, but also um, fits nicely with my skill set of uh, of sort of recommending Uh, books to people and uh yeah it's it's been it's been really really fun it's kind of nice to work on something that doesn't scale that isn't for everyone and is just kind of small and self-contained and uh like sort of part of the fabric of a place instead of you know another podcast or and even my book like something like 60% of my book sales are in one of the digital formats now. And so, you know, even if you sell books and you wrote them physical and you read mm-hmm. physical, still the majority of people are interacting with them digitally. And uh, it's, it's cool to do
0: something real. No, it's interesting. I mean, I, you're not the, you're not the only author to have ended up with a, a bookstore. I think Garrison Keillor owned one, owns one in St. Paul. And I think, who else is it? Margaret Atwood? Maybe, maybe you know. There's another. There's another bestselling author who also has a, a bookstore. Um, yeah, Parn- Parnassus Books
1: in Tennessee is owned um, by Ann Patchett, uh, and I think oh, George R. R. Right. Martin has like a bookstore theater somewhere. And then Larry McMurtry uh, had one uh, in in somewhere in Texas as well.
0: Interesting, um, and I, I and I guess I mean. It sounds like you own the building so like it seems like the overhead probably isn't very high but it, you know this is is a physical like in-store bookstore in a relatively small town is that like a is that is that a viable thing or is it more of sort of a, a vanity business or am a charity? Oh, it is, is actually it? it's a
1: little it's a little of both but i mean so I'm, I'm 30 minutes from downtown austin uh in in on the way to houston so it's at, locationally actually quite nice and it, it's a it's a town of Eight thousand people, but eighty thousand people live in the county, so it's actually a decent market. But I think you know sometimes Silicon Valley people have been kind of surprised at the durability of physical books. Um, But my argument has always been that books are actually an excellent piece of technology, um, and that's why they have you know endured for five thousand years. um, That 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 they do the job, but but as a business itself, you know. They're also a great business. You that you wholesale them at, at roughly fifty percent of list price, um, so you've got fifty percent margins. If you can keep ca- overhead costs down, on top of that, it's it's uh, it's not bad as well. And then the the vast majority of bookstores earn roughly fifty percent of their income selling things other than books. So you know T-shirts and postcards and you know um, knickknacks and 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 things like that. So. Um I I actually I actually like the business and I find it interesting. I mean, certainly not a way to get rich. Um but when I set it up the idea was like if this just doesn't lose a lot of money, it would be a success and it's sort of done done more than that at least. Um and it's been fun and I feel like, you know, I, I giving back makes it sound much more uh selfless than it actually is, but it, in terms of like what do you want to spend your time on? You know, bringing a bookstore to a place that doesn't have a bookstore, you know, it feel it feels good, and you know, it's not making the world a worse place.
0: Interesting, and I, and out of curiosity, I mean, you've gotten you've gotten into the business particular. So, just as yeah. a follow up question, like, are, are is 100 percent of sales like physical sales? Like, you don't do anything online? No, I do, I do do s- I
1: do stuff online. I mean, I sell signed copies of my own books. Um, I sell, you know, I, I sell books online. People, I think, are you know one of the things that I think Shopify has done to really nerd out about this is that Shopify has made it much easier to in in the way that one click with Amazon and and Amazon Prime made it just so much easier to shop with Amazon I don't know about you but I find myself more and more almost you know every month buying from sort of small merchants that maybe 5 years ago would have been third party sellers on Amazon or you know, not had an e-commerce business at all. Um, so I think people like supporting independent retail uh, and and they like supporting independent bookstores. But for me, um, in 2009, I started an email list where I just recommended books every month. Um, and, and I've been doing that now for, for more than uh, 10 years. And uh, I used to just say like, here, buy this on Amazon. And I would use an affiliate link. And I still do that for books that I don't carry. But I now also just feel like, I'm like, hey, I carry this book in my bookstore. Just buy it here and people do that. So I'd probably say 30% of the sales are online.
0: Wow, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I again, I've often thought of owning a physical business, but it just seems, yeah, it seems difficult. When things actually have to work in the physical world, it totally takes me out of my disembodied abstract self. <laughs> it sounds
2: very good. Well,
1: to me, the what I think will be somewhat of the future of it, and I've, I've noticed this with friends of mine who are like YouTubers or influencers, it's like if you have an – let's say you have an online business, but then you need a physical place to do what you do, whether it's a studio or a podcast set or, um, uh, you know, um, something like that, um, to then also have a retail component of that allows you to um, – reap some of the benefits of having in-person um, and then, uh, you know, not be solely dependent on. But like, so one of the things we have at the bookstore is um, I'm, it, 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 the building has like 23 foot ceilings. And so um, I, di- I paid this, I basically did this art project where the entire fireplace from floor to ceiling is made out of, is 2000 uh, stacked books. So it looks like the fireplace is made out of books and it's this giant tower of books that weighs like 4,000 pounds and uh, it's really cool. But the point is people could easily buy from us online. Um, people could easily buy whatever they want on Amazon, but on a Saturday they might drive out, have brunch across the street and then check out the space. And what do they wanna do? They wanna take a photo for Instagram in front of the thing. And so I think we're gonna see as more and more stuff goes online, Weirdly, it also creates a premium on physical experiences that you can then share online. And so um, I think the way I've set it up or the way I think about it is kind of, how do you, how do you create uh, an opportunity within that weird performative universe that we live in?
0: Uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I mean, the reality is that now in real life is the ultimate luxury and digital is like the cheap downmarket version of everything. Um, so I can see that. I, it's funny, I was I was checking out your website to to look at this famous bookshelf and I just realized "Painted Porch," and of course, it's an Easter egg reference to the I assume the etymology of the word Stoicism, the Stoa, which would be the painted porch on the northern edge of the, I think it was the Athenian mm-hmm. Agora, which is where the Stoics would gather. So interesting that, um, yeah. interesting that you you embed that reference in your uh, in your bookstore name.
1: <laughs> well, on top of that. Uh... Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, who who does set up on the Stoa um he washes up in Athens. He's a merchant. He he, de- he deals in uh, what they call Tyrian purple, which is this rare uh, dye made out of shellfish blood. Um, he he suffers this shipwreck. He loses everything. Uh, washes up penniless, and he ends up in in a uh, in a bookstore in Athens. Uh, or so so goes the story. He ends up at a, a bookstore in Athens. And the bookseller is reading um, one of Socrates' stories via Xenophon about the choice of Hercules. And uh, so to bring it all in perfect convergence with each other, the uh, Stoicism itself is founded in a bookstore. This is Zeno's introduction to philosophy, but the choice of Hercules is also in the ancient world, the uh, sort of parable about, either taking the path of virtue or the path of vice in the world, which I opened the the, the new series with.
0: Interesting. Um, so one thing I wanted to get to, I know we're getting a little bit uh, up in, in the time bracket here. Um, Whatever you want. Yeah, so, well, I, I did want to address it. So just to cut back to your book for a second, um, although I, I I could talk about books for a long time. My mother was a librarian, actually, I was raised in a in a book, in you know, surrounded by books. And in fact, I just I just moved to this house um, out in the desert here, and I moved all my books here, and they're still sitting in boxes. And I think I'm going to suffer from the problem that your um, that your wife complained about that the I think the books are going to take over the <laughs> take over the house, and I'm not quite sure what to do with it. Um, so I, I could talk books for a long time, but I, I do want to address the, the the last chapter in the book is different than all the other ones in that the you know again you you, you tend to yeah. speak in in. And illuminating historical anecdotes, and almost in sort of historical parables, but the the last chapter is really actually uh, autobiographical, and concerns your time at American Apparel, which which I knew about. I knew you'd come from the corporate marketing world, but I didn't really know the details. And so it was very much um, I'll, I'll be a modest and say an almost chaos monkeys like insider take on um, on what it was like. Do you, do you want to talk about that for a second, rather than have me badly characterize the? <laughs> The last chapter. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, no, it, 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 I, obviously, I wrote about my experiences a little bit in Trust Me I'm Lying. Um, but I, you know, I wrote Trust Me i 10 years ago. And so obviously, I'm 10 years older. Uh, the, the world is, is radically different in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I also have now had sort of 10 years of experience, uh, 10 years to sort of wrestle with, uh, the insanity, uh, of that experience. Um, it was, uh, It was. I mean, it's a dysfunctional company. It was a fascinating company. It was a groundbreaking company in a lot of ways. Also sort of profoundly broken and at the whims uh, of, of one man's uh, strange personality and the cult of personality that he built around himself. Um, the story I tell him that at the end of the book, I thought, you know, I thought there would be some sort of halo effect. You know, you write about all these inspiring people who've done these great things, one of the sort of tricks of writing is that as you, it, it, it's like, look, we care what Elon Musk's biographer has to say about things, even though he's never done anything, right? Like uh, I wrote a book about Peter Thiel and suddenly that gave me credibility with certain people even though I you know, I wasn't the one who did any of it, I just read and thought a lot about it. And so there's this sort of halo effect that comes from writing about things and I felt kind of uncomfortable with that. And so as I thought about how I wanted to wrap up the book, I wanted to, uh, maybe I was just interested in the challenge of it as well. I wanted to go, I wanted to sort of catch the reader by surprise and end with a story that was not about courage or was was about how complicated these things are in the real world. So I basically talk about um, this sort of scandal at American Apparel in which I Uh, was both involved and not involved in that I wanted to, I sort of saw myself at the time as being, you know, not one of the bad guys, uh, but in retrospect, you know, didn't go nearly far enough in what I did. And so I wanted to sort of show, I wanted to show sort of a falling short. And I also wanted to show sort of how one learns from that. And again, all with the idea of like, I didn't want people, because it's not true, I didn't want people to emerge from the book thinking that I was some, uh, you know, I'm not a Navy SEAL, right? Like, it would be weird for me to write a a book about courage and pretend that I have it all figured out.
2: Right. I mean,
0: you know, I think that to me is one of the pitfalls of often taking historical narratives and and seeing them as edifying, or even religious books that it, you know, I I mean, as true as they might've been, right? There's always some narrative fallacy going on that in some Mm -hmm. sense puts a nice little narrative bow on, you know, whatever the sort of chestnut is. And when you actually get into the weeds of, and and you describe this, I think very well, because you describe, you know, a lot of the sort of corporate machinations and sort of, um, you know, underhanded sort of behavior. And, you know, I, I don't even know the full American Apparel story, although I do recall, I recall there was like a Vanity Fair piece or whatever that really kicked off the sort of what we now call a cancellation to the, the then-CEO, um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Dove Charney. Um, right, who... Um, yeah, uh, I guess Charney. <laughs> well, obviously you worked with him, so you could characterize him a lot better, but he he seemed to have been both very gifted and also very unprincipled in much of what he did. And I think you you, you start your chapter talking about, I guess there was some sort of scheme around leaking what we would now call revenge porn, um, which obviously is completely unethical and illegal and all the rest of it. Um, And I I think you raised the issue, not just for the sort of lurid detail, but to present it as a sort of moral challenge uh, for yourself and the others in the circle. Um.
1: Well, well, So what it was is he he often had relationships with uh, employees. This was his, I don't wanna say it was his thing, but it was his thing. And uh, you know he they, they were consensual as far as they could be consensual. I think with distance, obviously, uh, it's impossible for a forty-year-old man to have a consensual relationship with a nineteen-year-old employee making, you know, eleven dollars an hour. Um, but but he would have these relationships with employees or or just with people, right? He would have the he was a sort of a playboy. Uh, character and um so he he had this relationship with this girl, and it was a very uh, uh, lurid relationship and then she she sued him she sued him for like two hundred million dollars um and it was a huge, i mean the, the lawsuits were all over the media it was a big deal um they were they were supposed to go to private arbitration and then they they sort of burst into the headlines and Dove's defense was look, this person, I think the person she was accusing her, in one of the lawsuits, it, it was, he was being, he was accused of sort of holding an employee as some sort of sex slave. It, it, it was like as lurid as an, an extreme, uh, an accusation as one could possibly uh, leverage or level. And And his response was, this isn't true. I have photographic and text evidence uh, to the contrary. And he came into my office one day and and I was the, you know, head of marketing and and the company spokesperson. And he said, you know, I want you to uh, make this case. Like, I want you to show this information to these outlets. And I was like, you can't do that. You can't take, you know, uh, nude photos that uh, uh, a woman texted you and give them to reporters. That's is not how this works, right? It, not only is it a bad idea as far as a public relations strategy, but it's, you know, abhorrent, you you can't do that. Um, and so he sort of stormed off and had somebody else to do it. And and so, you know, I sort of patted myself on the back at the time that I sort of took this stand. It wasn't a thing that one did if you wanted to keep your job there. Um, and And I'm sure eventually sort of hastened my exit but I also didn't do much beyond that right like I didn't stop it from happening and I feel uh some I feel guilt about that but I also feel um I feel like uh this is sort of how it goes right what we tell ourselves as long as you're not sort of doing the thing you're not complicit but you know, uh, what's that Nassim Taleb line about? If you see fraud and don't say fraud, you are a fraud. You know, like certainly by by the the logic of that statement, I was as complicit as the person who who did it.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm sure there's a big debate you could have there about the moral equivalency of actually like pulling the trigger versus watching it get pulled. But, uh, but, but I can see what you're saying. Right. Yeah. I think you. Either in that chapter or another, you cite the example of the, um, of, I believe it was Khrushchev condemning Stalin's purges and uh, an anecdote about somebody saying, well, yeah. what did you do at the time? And he replied, well, exactly what you're doing now, which is just sitting there. <laughs> um, I might have garbled that yeah. anecdote, but I think, it, it's, I think it's directionally correct and, and gives the spirit of what you're saying. Um, Interesting. Um, well, again, I think it's very admirable of you to again to like zoom in to I think your own behavior because again, it's, I think it's very I, not that it's easy, but that you know it's it's one thing to to draw examples from history that again through either you know retrospective kind of editing uh, or just the nature of history itself, a lot of the you know the the gnarly details actually get lost in the recounting to to something that's like the messy the messy details of everyday life but often seem a little bit less grandiose than, you know, the Spartans at Thermopylae, or <laughs> as the case may be. Um, well,
1: it was, tr- it was tricky because I also, I had to go back and ask a bunch of people, right? Because this is obviously how I remember it in my mind, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, I wasn't lying to myself, that like right. it wasn't worse than I remembered. And then I think, you, and you certainly saw this recently with, with your experiences, which is, and I had asked my publisher, I asked different people that had read the book, it's like, Look, am I committing like career suicide here? Like, um, you got to be honest with me. Like, obviously, I want to say what I want to say, but I, I, you know, what kind of culture is this going out into uh, be received by? And that was something I had to think about because, unfortunately, we don't live in a world where um, not only can one, do we not have uh, the ability to deal with people who have um, sort of owned a mistake. But we also seem to have eradicated the idea of, um, you know, 23, 24 years old, also an employee in this sort of fucked up, you know, uh, dysfunctional workplace is not who I am today. And, and I would of course do things very differently now than I did then. But part of the reason I would do things differently now is that i did them that way then and i have both regrets and lessons that i've taken from that but we we don't i think we're gonna we're gonna be in a hard spot as a society if we go back and read people's memoirs as we did in your case and decide to retroactively hold people accountable for things that by the way they voluntarily shared um you know in a spirit of self appraisal and in some cases uh self scrutiny right and so the, there there was you know a moment where you know that that story that's in the book was mine until September 27th right and then September 28th it is released and you sort of you sort of hold your breath and go like well i hope uh i i hope uh hope it goes okay you know
0: what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's weird. Part part of this weird, like, one of the conceit of our current progressive politics, of course, is that you know the past was this horrifying country in which people lived in gross squalor and injustice, and it's all terrible, and we must judge the past according to our our modern lights. Um, and never mind, obviously, like, not even understanding you know, the sort of tropes of literary nonfiction in which things can be done in a certain gonzo style or whatever that don't necessarily represent, you know, the most dry objective truth. Um, and that's, that's kind sure. of the art of the thing, right? Because the dry objective truth <clears throat> would be impossible to read for 400 pages. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and we have this other conceit, which is somehow that the criminal justice system is massively unfair. Every person who is convicted of a crime should be uh you know treated with clemency and mercy and rehabilitated and, and you know can reenter society you know it's like the same people that are you know developing coding programs that help like convicted murderers uh get out of prison and uh and uh get jobs at tech companies are also the same people cheerleading the uh permanent cancellation of somebody for an intemperate remark made. Fifteen years ago, right, like we have this weird sense where we we, we sort of want to forgive right. what stuff that's like profoundly unforgivable in some ways and then be uh extremely harsh and uh and and and, and unlenient over you know thought crimes that may have been committed uh it, in in the past or by a person. Uh, that 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 the person no longer even recognizes. So it's kind of this weird, uh, you know, compartmentalization we have um, that uh, so I think social media uh, em- emboldens for some reason.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's weird. It's it's going to take us a little bit further afield, but I I think what you're putting your finger on is that you know this, uh, you know, I, obviously I'm not even remotely the first person to say a lot of this wokeness is obviously a sort of secularized militant puritanical Protestantism, right? And at you know at the <laughs> core of that Christianity, and I had a long interview with Tom Hahn on pull request about it, who wrote the book Dominion, that's about a lot of this. Um, you know, the the Christ story, right, to get Ger Girardian about it, the, the notion of the victim as divinity, right? And that putting a stop to mob violence, right? That that is kind of the driving moral myth of Western life. Um a- along with other things, of course. But you know that that invocation of the Christ story is very selective nowadays, right? And it's, it's a function of not just who is the Christ, but who's considered to be the tormentor in the picture, right? Because mm-hmm. that's one part that Gerard kind of glosses over is that there's, there's Pilate there, there's the Roman centurion there who's torturing Jesus to death. And the identity of that, I mean, Pilate is the sort of sy- systemic oppression, so to speak, and who, who the character of the Pilate is and whatever the Christ story kind of matters as well, right? Because in some sense, it's not just the elevation of the victim, it's also the condemnation of Pilate that's an integral part of the Christ story as it actually exists in our lived lives. Right. And so in some sense for the Christ narrative to kind of be, to turn the crank on the Christ narrative, you've got to have the right Christ and the right pilot sort of cast in the movie. Otherwise like the movie just doesn't fly. And um, anyhow, I, you see a lot of that these days in which there's a lot of selective invocations of what you're calling, you know, real forgiveness and clemency and gospel like turn the other cheek. And then just the most ruthless mob condemnation, uh, often by the very same people um, when, you know, the cast of the morality play changes ever so slightly. Right. Um, Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, you know, uh, I've, I've made this case to other, you know, practicing Christians and they usually like highlight which flavor of Christian heresy is being invoked in this secularized Christianity. It's funny that even the sort of secular reboots of Christianity fall into the same sort of heretical dead ends that Christianity originally did. Um, But you know, my reply to that is like, well, I mean, if that's the version of Christianity as is being played in society, that that's what it is, right? I mean, you can declare it a heresy until you're blue in the face in the same way that, you know, 16th century Catholics declared Luther to be a heretic. <laughs> Nonetheless, we still have Protestants, right? And arguably, yeah, go ahead. Well, so,
1: somewhat related to this, one thing I was nerding out about recently is um, the sort of parallels in that. So, okay, so Jesus and Seneca are born the same year, according to to, to some accounts they 're both born in provinces of the Roman Empire uh, they both become wildly influential philosophers in their own time, and then they both die uh, one older than the other, but they both die at the hands of the Roman state and their deaths uh, are sort of you know become endless fodder for art, paintings, stories, myths, et cetera, um, for thousands of years. There's all sorts of fascinating paintings of Seneca's uh, sort of forced suicide at the hands of Nero. Um, And then where they really get connected is that Seneca's brother, Gaio, is in the Bible uh, as a judge of St. Paul, he he lets him go. Um, And so I I just, I love this idea that like, Seneca, uh, sorry, that Stoicism and Christianity are at the same time in the same place exploring a lot of the same ideas, and then you know I sent my sort of historical what if is like we we sort of picked as as a Western society we picked one and we went down one road. What would the world look like had we gone down the other road?
0: Right, because it's, um, if you look at the history of Stoicism, it, it more or less ended as a viable philosophy when Christianity arose as the official religion of the Roman Empire, right? So in some sense, yes. there was a zero sum interaction there between Stoicism and Christianity. Um, yeah.
1: There's a great book called uh,
0: In the Blood of the
1: Martyrs or The Blood of the Martyr, I think, um, by Naomi Murchison. And uh, it's about sort of the rise of Christianity in Seneca's time. Um, and and their persecution under Nero, and sort of how these two philosophies intersect, and and certainly the Stoics saw saw them as kind of zero sum. I mean, one of the most brutal sort of uh, instances of of Stoicism and, and Christianity interacting are um, comes with Junius Rusticus, who's who's Marcus Aurelius's philosophy teacher, who connects him to who gives him the writings of Epictetus. Um, uh, Junius Rusticus is the judge who orders uh you know the death of, of what we now refer to as Justin Martyr, um and, and a gruesome, terrible death for for basically refusing to um you know uh acknowledge the existence of the or the supremacy of the Roman gods. Uh and 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 uh and there's some evidence that that Justin had himself studied stoicism. So it's like these sort of it's like you have these two ideas. Uh, it's like a, you know, it's like uh, two operating systems operating simultaneously for a brief moment, but it's a winner take all uh, uh, market. And, and one ultimately uh, swallows the other.
0: Interesting. I hadn't realized that there was in fact historical relations between the, the Christ story and the early church and some of the actual leading Stoic philosophers. It's an interesting sort of intertextual reference. You don't, typically see those streams kind of overlapping that way interesting well that so that that brings re- me to my last question we're, we're heading up on an hour um, Okay. but uh, again you you know your book your previous books definitely got into stoic philosophy i think head on the, the more recent book on courage it's it's less i mean I, I i would say it's it's stoicism infused but it's almost like life lessons that don't necessarily relate directly to my reading the stoic philosophy and it and it seems yeah. like you're you know you're doling out in many ways I wouldn 't call it religion per se, but they're definitely sermon like or homily like um, in that you can almost imagine the guru of some religion actually like delivering these in, in some context. so I'm curious one thought that I 've had obsessing me, and I've asked a lot of guests um, from like geneticists to, to, to you know religion historians. Does liberalism, as we understand it today, and it's kind of a squishy, it's kind of a squishy topic that you can define various ways. But in order to keep liberalism go- going, do we need a form of religion in some sense? Because I think the existence and success of books like yours um, m- makes me think that that we do need them, and that in some sense, um, yeah. So I'll stop there.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I think the American system of uh, liberalism was always built around the idea of um, private virtue, right? So we'll we'll let you do basically whatever you want, but we know you're not actually gonna do whatever you want because you have this sort of code that prevents you from doing that. I think that's one of the things we've seen, not just in the Trump years, but just uh, generally in our political system is the sort of realization that much, almost in the British sense, that much of our, constitution is unwritten and that much much of the sort of levers uh, much 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 of the traditions that we follow are are sort of norm based and that if you are suddenly in, empower someone who has no respect for the norms no understanding of virtue no no even sort of basic sense of right or wrong um you realize just how paper thin most of the protections that you actually have are and so I think we uh, and, and I w- I put a lot of the blame on the progressives. We have um, we have not done a good job defining what virtue is and what morality is and what we expect of people. Um, you know uh, we have we have undermined religion, uh, and I, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Is I i I'm, sort of a, an agnostic myself. Um, and, and when I tend to look at the religions, I I um, am, am usually less than impressed, but we, as we have chipped away at those things, we've not replaced it. So like, if, if you said like, look, we're gonna make a secular argument for many of these same virtues, I'm all about it, but you can't just chip away at say the religion and not replace it with anything. And I think where we struggle now is that we have, you know, we have knocked down patriotism and nationalism and uh you know religion and you know we've even even some of the ideas of truth itself, right? We we've chipped away at all these enlightenment ideas. Um and, and the academy does a great job, right? You go to college, you and you sort of sit in class after class that tells you that, hey, these ideas that your parents told you about that you grew up thinking were this or that, let me show you why they're not true, or let me show you why they're full of shit, or let me show you why, you know, all these people are hypocrites, right? And I think that's an important part of the learning. But if you don't replace it with anything, if you don't give any, if you don't give solid ground for people to stand on, I think you end up in this. Chaotic, you know, sort of
0: unstable
1: world that we're in. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I've come to that same conclusion, and I've written about it myself. I mean, I'm undergoing this Jewish conversion process. I wrote this piece that went surprisingly viral about why I'm doing it. That ended up being this kind of denunciation of, of secular liberalism as we know it today. And I, I, you know, I think that's one of the issues, right? I mean, liberalism as as it exists today, and as it's typically criticized is you know the the sort of project of freeing the individual from any unchosen obligations right and that the you know the greatest good to use yeah. somewhat religious language is, is sought through literally maximizing individual human freedom and but that but that itself is a faith based belief right there's no there's no necessary there's no law of physics that says that maximizing human freedom necessarily leads to to maximum collective human happiness um and so i it, yeah if 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 you rob the world, if you desacralize the world to use anthropological language right that means you've you 've robbed it of not just the sort of big man in the sky, which is what typically the new atheists kind of obsessed about you you also rob it of of many things of of wonder right of 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 a certain moral order yeah. like your heart should jump and you should feel bad if you 're going to do bad things right and it's hard to create that with some wonky argument about, you know, systemic forms of oppression and how it leads to crime. <laughs> like, it just doesn't work. Um,
1: or, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Civil War. I've written a lot about it. I love studying it. I live in the South. So if you have, you know, sort of the lost cause mythology, which is propaganda and, and based on untruth. Um, so you have that, which is sort of destabilizing. But then you have on top of that the sort of uh, the, the lens of, uh, well, Lincoln was also a racist and uh, Grant was a drunk. And, you know, you you also have it coming from your own side, right? And and it wasn't just about slavery. And in fact, blah, 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 blah. So, so then you, weirdly, you actually get both sides confirming the sort of same almost nihilistic explanation of things. And then you wonder why nobody wants to be the good guy. It's like they just... They just spent their whole life learning that good guys don't exist. Right. Or that that that. um, And and so you you sort of deprive people of a narrative that they can grab hold of and say, like, yeah, look, like uh, the world is getting better and I want to be on that side. Um, And and then I think that's kind of where we are now.
0: Right. I mean, I, speaking of copes, right, like it's, it's bizarre to me that I, in a lot of the popular narrative, which these days, of course, is like Netflix and movies, you know, superheroes and, you know, nothing against the Marvel Universe, but it's, it's a fantasy and it's escapism. The only place that heroism can sort of broadly be represented is in this fantastical world filled with literally supernatural characters, right? You you cannot make a heroic biopic about like Abraham Lincoln anymore, right? I mean his name is being stripped off of San Francisco schools, right? So heroism cannot be found in the real world. It's only in the most comic book versions, which I I think is a tragic cultural loss. Okay, Ryan. But here's the thing.
1: Yeah, you you might not be able to make a Hollywood movie where you could do that, although the the Lincoln movie from Spielberg was not that long ago. But Here's what I found, when you actually, if you can actually get stuff out in the world, like I can publish a book, put whatever I want in it, that is what people actually want, right? Like, so you have this sort of liberal gatekeeper filter and then you also have like, a, 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 you have other filters, but like, what do people actually want? Like real human beings who read things, who are trying to get better in their life, they want meaning, they want stories, they want inspiration. This is what they actually want, um, It's just this sort of weird culture that we have that seems to try to suppress those things.
0: Right, I mean, this is the, you know, tomato meter, you know, Mm -hmm. memes that everyone's sharing or the Delta between like the Chappelle special or whatever and, you know, the the sort of elite mainstream press take on it and like the popular take on it. I mean, it it seems like you play a little bit in that world as well, right? In the sense, like like you're saying, you're writing books about things that people are actually willing to buy, which they do, Um, but it's not the message that kind of comes out of the elite media, and so it's interesting that, like, I, I did an interview that I haven't posted yet because I've been slacking. Uh, with just a side of another example, Ben Shapiro, who is definitely not in the elite elite media sphere yet, but does a very brisk trade in his own media, right? Because clearly there's a market for it. So, I mean, obviously you're you're probably bullish on this notion mm-hmm. of like non-elite media that people actually want to read and write, and kind of breaking the the gateholder mechanism. Although your books are published by conventional, well-known publishers, right? So it's not as if Um, you're like, you know, living in in the woods, so to speak, but, um, but, um,
1: (laughs) no, but I, but I think the more you own your audience, the more you're able to deliver those things. And, uh, one of the nice things about books is that there are not, you know, a book is a a creative project of one person, unlike a movie, which requires a whole bunch of other people to sort say, say yes.
0: (sighs) Oh, right. Um. Cool. Okay. So we're kind of getting over time. I I do note that somebody is actually a caller, which means I guess they probably want to ask a question. I've actually never used this during call-in, I have to say, but if you don't mind, maybe I'll invite uh, Jenny up. Let me see. How do I even do this? Um, Make next caller versus invite to speak. I guess invite to speak. Let's see if this works. I don't know if Jenny is still there. I think she's been there for a while. I'm here. Hey. (laughs)
2: Hey, I, I don't really have a question, just a comment. I'm a mother of five adult children who have been seduced to varying degrees to progressivism. And my take on the whole scene, the oldest one is 33 down to 18. My take on the whole scene is that we who are a little bit older, perhaps a little bit wiser, um, need to stand strong and firm. And I personally turn into a quivering pile of goo when having a political conversation with one of my children because I don't want to be canceled for my family. I don't want to be canceled for my grandchildren. And so it's really hard for me to hold the line and, and just stand strong in what I know to be true. And I was in a forum with parents, you know, about my same age, about two years ago, and we were talking about this. And one man bravely spoke up and he said, we have to hold the line with our progressive children. They will thank us later. Once this Leviathan is taken down and replaced with something real, they will thank us later. And so that's just always kind of something I've been holding on to as I have watched my children just march lockstep to what they learned in college. It's been heartrending. As they've moved away from the faith that we taught them, as they have moved away from their patriotism, again, that we taught them, we instilled in them this great love for our our country. And they've just, you know, just marched away from it. It's just been heartrending, But we have to stand strong. So thank you for the show. I've loved every word.
0: No, thanks, Jenny. I mean, yeah, you know, it's funny. I I think I remarked on it in my Why Judaism piece that um, I think everyone up here— has children but that you know when you have children a lot of the moral debates that were at a very philosophical and abstract level in your mind suddenly become very real because you've got this stake in the future that is you know you feel is an emanation of you to some degree and that even if you don't you're still responsible for and so when that kid looks to you and asks you questions you kind of have to give answers right and you kind of have to pick in some sense in your micro way of like okay what you know i almost think of it as like what not what message do I put in the bottle or almost like the NASA scientists with the Voyager probe who like picked a few human cultural artifacts to put on the probe thinking that maybe like this is the last thing that's going to be left from human civilization. Um, And so, um, yeah, I can see how having children just raises the stakes um, of that conversation and that, and that, and that thought.
2: Well, and we have to give, we have to give them the time and the space to mature. You know, there's an old, Saying that if you're not a liberal under thirty, you have no heart, and if you're not a conservative over thirty, you have no brain. There's really a lot of truth to that.
0: Ryan, do you do you impart your sto, your your lessons of stoicism to your to your children?
1: Well, my 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 oldest is is not yet even five, so we're we're not quite at the uh, sort of uh, explicit level on any of these things. But I did I did a um, I did a a kid's book during the pandemic about the sort of boyhood of Marcus Aurelius um, called The Boy Who Would Be King. Um, So I I am starting to think about this. And I think one of the ways that you start is within stories. And I think, so although I'm probably more progressive than most of the people listening to this, uh, I I sort of identify as probably center, maybe center right uh, on on some issues, center left on other issues. I think the sort of conservative reaction to a lot of the progressive stuff is probably only driving people further left. I think the way you, as as Nassim Taleb talks about, the way you replace a story or combat a story is with a better story, right? So the, the, let's say critical race theory, let's say you have objections to it. The solution is not banning critical race theory, it's telling, Uh, a different version of American history, right? Um, And the problem is that critical race theory is a reaction against uh, uh, an equally problematic version of American history, right? And so I think we're in this sort of story or narrative war and both sides, when their narrative is challenged, um, instead of responding with a better narrative, just attacks the other side's narrative or tries to ban said narrative. And then, then you get in this whole sort of, you know, nightmare culture war that we're in. Um, So I just think about it in terms of stories. What are the values that I want to teach my kids and how do I inspire them to follow
0: those values? Right. I mean everyone just wants to own the X where the X is your your political antagonist. By the way, Ryan, I'm completely disappointed. I was imagining you'd raise your kids like the Spartans. You would just like <laughs> give them like a spear and kick them out of the house in the middle of winter. And if you don't come back, then sorry. You're just <laughs> joking, joking. <laughs> well, we do
1: live out in the country and they're basically like wild animals. So we're we're on we're on some some version of
0: this. Well, right. I mean it's it seems like in Texas, um, they're probably the most Spartan. Texans are like the Spartans of Americans. It seems like, so I I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I I wouldn't be surprised if already they're getting kind of a stoical upbringing by, by default. Um, Cool, Ryan. Well, thanks for your time. We've won Ray over, which is usually a good sign actually. Yes. Um, And thanks for the questions. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for joining Um, this, this podcast will be available later. It's not just like clubhouse. It doesn't disappear. Um, People can listen to it later. Um, So, A lot of the listening, actually, Ryan, it actually happens async. This is kind of a weird time on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. So I'm guessing a lot of people are going to tune in um, later. So thanks again for joining us. And I I really enjoyed the book. Thanks for having me. Okay. See you, Ryan.